You're listening to Rock Shop Live, brought to you by Stuart Travel Guitars. See the incredible stowaway travel guitar at stewartguitars.com. Microphones for Rock Shop Live are provided by Rode Microphones. Now for Music Gear Network, here's your host, guitarist Eric Broadbent. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this Wednesday afternoon edition of Rock Shop Live. My name is Eric Broadbent, and it comes with extreme pleasure to welcome our extremely talented guest, who the first time here on the show, as I mentioned, international guitar sensation, guitarist Joe Satriani. I'm going to bring him on right now. Joe, how are you? I'm very good. Very happy to be here. How are you today? I'm fantastic. Uh, lifetime achievement to be able to speak with you, and uh, this is this is great. I mean, I can't. There's only a couple bands I will go buy the records. You know, like I listen to a lot of stuff. Van Halen, I'll buy everything that there is. Everything bootleg I can get. Every legit product, and you. Uh, I don't. Oh. That's it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank I, you I, very much. I know how you put so much into the artwork and everything too, and your team, your creative team. So that's so nice with products today, you know, like and everything's coming back. Vinyl's a big rediscovery again as well too. You've got some great stuff. We'll talk about that record, but yeah, an absolute pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Before we jump you know, deep into the program, I mean, people can see in the background, in your background there, you're obviously a big fan of uh, Eddie Van Halen, some beautiful pieces yeah. back to the block letter 5150, EL34, the Saldano. I mean, you got it all. Fantastic stuff. We were talking about the Frankie, but I didn't show you this one. I showed you the other one. Oh, so yeah, I've got two that I play when when I just want to play, you know, pay homage to the great Eddie. There you go. There you go. Well, as I said, as I said at the start here, like there's only there's like two two bands I really go out and physically buy, uh, you know, the the material because I want to have the that you know touchy feely look at everything on it. But Van Halen, you and Joe, uh, you and Eddie Van Halen were the biggest influences in my life, and I'm just curious, you know, you know, it's sad we've lost him, and uh, I think his spirit lives on even stronger now. I'm curious to see what your take is on how he influenced you as a musician. Well, you know, um, I think uh, the way that I was introduced to him. Uh, was was so natural. It's just like a crazy fan story, you know, where I'm in my apartment, I'm practicing guitar at the beginning of the day, just playing along to the radio. I lived across the street from a guitar store where I, where I had started teaching guitar. So it was kind of a normal thing to do just to get my chops up for the day before I walked across the street and started teaching. And all of a sudden, unannounced eruption comes through the speakers. And, you know, I was just frozen, like in the room. I just sat there with my guitar, with my mouth open, couldn't play a note. I just like, I thought this is the greatest thing I've heard in like years. This, it was like the effect of hearing Hendrix the first time when I was a little kid. And uh, I mean, long story short, he was amazing. That, that recording of Eruption has got so much life and love of music in it, besides the fact that it was technical wizardry and all that kind of stuff. We all know about that as guitar players. Um, but here's the thing that was so important, and it's really hard to explain, but at that time, there was a kind of a push to downplay guitar playing. And out of nowhere comes this guy who just says, no, I'm going to play it up. <laughs> and he just kind of reinvented the guitar for all of us guitar players who really wanted to play and had an idea of including all music into our guitar parts to support a band, uh, but always to make it fun and rock and roll and exciting to be, you know, that beautiful mixture of uh, uh, musical credibility and irreverent rock and roll, you know, having fun just for the sake of it. Um, I love that. And, and, uh, 
I just thought it was kind of validating because I wanted to do it. I couldn't do it like Eddie, but I just thought if he can do it, that means we can all join in. You know, he's he became like a leader for a lot of us players who wanted to play more aggressively, but we're getting sort of slapped down every time we, you know, would show up for a session somewhere and they say, no, no, come on, play it cooler, play it cooler. And, you know, it was sort of, uh, we were getting bored until Eddie came along. <laughs> <laughs> well, as you and I were talking just off the air before we started as well too, like we're talking about the, you know, the Floyds and things like that as well. Look at, look at, take away his talent, which is just, you can't even put that on a scale, but what he's done for manufacturing today, look what we have in the world available to us, uh, tools that, you know, I mean, you're a big Floyd user, you know, you, the whammy bar is, is a, is a big tool for you uh, to have your guitar stay in tune the way it does the sustain, the game we have in amplifiers, take away all the Eddie Van, Halen, Eddie Van Halen amplifiers you have behind you, just amplification as we know it today, effects pedals today, all because yeah. of that man. Yeah, it's, it's really great. And it's just because, as he used to call himself a, you know, a tone chaser, um, and he, you know, a lot of times he used, uh, like the old stuff, like he'd have an old, uh, you know, early 70s, 100 watt Marshall head, but he'd turn it up and leave the room and have, a bunch of mics and he'd EQ it to where it eventually sounded like it, it does on the albums. But if you walked out there, you'd be like, Oh my God, that's like, that's too much, <laughs> too, much. <laughs> too yeah. many frequencies, you know, but he had the knowledge to know that sometimes you, the amp should be giving you like everything plus the kitchen sink. And then you filter out the stuff you don't need for your gig. And in this case, he's playing with his brother and, and Mikey, and he's got Dave on vocals, so he's got to find his place within that band, you know, sonically as well as as rhythmically and harmonically. But the sonics are really important. So it's interesting that he didn't use uh, distortion pedals. I, I find that so interesting. Like you don't hear ring modulator or um, uh, uh, like what what um, uh, what other players of that time were using, like he wasn't stomping on a box like Randy Rhodes. MXR uh, Distortion Plus, yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, just you didn't hear any of that stuff. He, for some reason, he just wanted to drive the amp crazy and filter out the nasty stuff instead of finding a pedal that would do it for him. Cascading uh, gain, volume equals gain. It's yeah. very, very interesting, super dynamic, you know, just like, wow. Yeah. That's a lot of, you know, volume range between parts and and stuff uh but as guitar players uh, you and i know that whole dynamic thing is a whole world you could you could spend weeks doing broadcasts just about that <laughs> <laughs> indeed uh so i'm going to jump over in a second to talk about the new record it's i, I can't wait to get a hold of it. i got the limited edition uh, pink vinyl coming as well and oh. your team was nice enough to send an advanced uh, listen to the whole album and i've been playing it back and forth listening to it getting prepared for the interview but before we talk about the album per se this is a, a new thing to you as far as your solo material and not as far as your other chicken foot material and things of that nature but you have a new partnership with ear music i wonder if you could tell us about how that works now with your solo material and how that relationship came to be and what it means to you yeah um well um i got introduced to ear music uh through max vaccaro uh who uh runs the nr ear music he, he may have he may be like vice president or something by now i'm not really sure um but i met him over 10 years ago when he brought chicken foot in and took care of our uh our catalog worldwide outside the u.s so I've known him for a long time, great music lover, good friend, uh, loves guitar playing. And we always 
felt like, wow, we could make some really cool records if we ever, you know, that business relationship ever, ever could grow. Uh, but I was still signed to Sony. But that record deal, which started, if you can believe it, in 1989, <laughs> uh, finally ran through all of its option periods uh, about two years ago. And we were all wondering, like, are they going to re-sign me or are they going to offer some other option period? Uh, but I think everyone was feeling like, well, since everybody there that I made this great catalog with had left, they either retired, got fired, or they just dropped out of the music business or something. Uh, I felt like, well, I don't know anybody at Sony anymore. It's like they've all moved on and, and my deal's coming to an end. So maybe it's a good time to, to call Max and see if he's still interested in doing something crazy. So um, that just sort of happened just as we were releasing uh, shape-shifting and the lockdown started. It was a very tumultuous time uh, just in terms of my little micro world of, of what to do about touring and releasing records and the record deal and, and where to go next. So, uh, But I'm so happy that uh, I landed uh, at Ear Music because they gave me a full artistic license to dream up uh, a fantastic album uh, that is bigger in scope than I ever thought I'd be able to make. Um, so the Elephants of Mars is a, just a, you know, it's a wonderful thing uh, to have happened to me that I was able to make that record and that uh, they are uh, bringing it to the world in such beautiful formats. I've got, I, I should have brought the, uh, the LP because I just got a box yesterday. Nice. And they look amazing. And, uh, uh, it's really great after working on the, the project for so long. It's great to see it uh, in the real world, finally. <laughs> you know, as an artist, it's got to feel so good to see that like that, too. Not just as digital downloads all the time. And, you know, it's beautiful artwork. You put a lot into it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's it really is something. And it's uh, it's a testament to the teamwork, you know, that goes into it, uh, because, you know, this album was made. Uh, remotely, everyone was working in their little satellite studios around the world. And uh, even uh, Todd Galapo, the art director, um, he was working remotely. We had to send him photos. <laughs> you know, he couldn't do what he usually did, which is, you know, we'd spend like 18 hours together one day doing photos. And, and uh, he'd be there actually, you know, hands-on guy, building sets, uh, moving the lights around, uh, directing movements, you know, <laughs> making fun of me, uh, all that kind of stuff. But we had to do this all remotely. So um, uh, it, it added to the excitement when we finally saw it come out. Uh, you know, you open the box and you go, oh, my God, there it is. It's not a dream. It's <laughs> reality. <laughs> so have you have you uh, been face to face with any of the guys yet since since the record's done? Like, have you been in a room yet? Almost all of them. I have yet to meet my new keyboard player, Ray Thistlethwaite. It's all been like this, like I'm talking to yeah. you now. Um, he uh, is in the band Thirsty Merc from Australia, so he's been there most of the time. He had a, a, a brief moment uh, last year where he, he was able to travel to Los Angeles on his way to Europe to play with uh, Lewis Cole. Uh, but I was stuck up here, so he did meet with the other guys for, for a couple of drinks Um but uh, the band itself, outside of Ray, um, we shot two videos uh, in the last few months with my son ZZ directing. And um, so we, we've 
uh, yeah, we've had the chance to hang out and celebrate together uh, this crazy record that we've made. And the video, oh my God, when you see the, the video for the Elephants of Mars, you will freak out. It's, <laughs> I think ZZ just went totally crazy on this one. It's like nothing you've ever seen before. So we're real excited. That'll be out, I guess, in a week. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. And the, the record comes to April 8th. Is that the international release date? Yes. Yeah. That's good. That's coming soon. Yeah. We're the first on Friday. So that's good. Next week. That's, that's is fantastic. Yeah. Definitely looking forward to it. I got a question coming in in the live chat from our one of our good friends, and Eamon Wise. For some reason, we have a lot of guitar players in our chat today. I'm not sure why. Why? <laughs> <laughs> but Eamon and, and one of my other good friends as well, too, Paul Terrio, he just picked up one of your signature uh, limited edition, the silver the silver one. Um, mm. He was showing it off on Facebook the other night. It was really nice, beautiful guitar. He loves you. He plays, he, he does a mean uh, interpretation of you. He's really good. Is that good? Oh, good. Yeah, it is really, really good. Um, he, uh, Eamon says uh, he would love to get a run through of the gear used on a new album and any plans for any new JS models. Oh, yes. Um, I don't have that one here in the room, but um, the crazy thing about the gear is I, I was using like this chrome guitar, um, using, and this looks probably awkward, me reaching off camera like that. Oh, it's all good. Uh, the, the, this guitar sounds so thick. It's really amazing. You never know with guitars, you know. Um, and, uh, of course, the red one. Oh, this was caught in a strap. There it is. Okay. Yeah, the, the MCO, also really sweet. These things, you know, um, uh, they've got uh, basswood bodies and the chrome and uh, the Paisley guitars use alder. So there is a slight change. Uh, I think the alder body ones are just tighter, a little bit more aggressive in the, in the mid range, which is really cool. Basswood bodies have that sort of low end, high end thing going. Um, what did I use? My seven string here. This, you know, my old prototype. Um, it's like a JS six in seven string form. Use that on quite a few songs uh, on the album. The craziest thing is there were no amps. I know you see all these really beautiful amps and they're really great to play live. Uh, but I started not intentionally, but I started uh, recording direct, as I always do, have for 20 years plus maybe, uh, with, with the thought that I would be reamping using, uh, where's John's reamp? It's somewhere around here. Um, reamping uh, the guitar signals once we all got together in a real studio. But of course, that didn't happen because of the lockdowns that kept coming up. And uh, so I was reamping here uh, in the studio and i'd use you know the marshalls the pvs um, the evh i'd use all the all the amps that i had a lot of old fenders that i've got and then i started using some modeling things um i've got that great uh amplitude uh five suite um that's got a lot of my models in there and um a few of the neural plugins just a bunch of stuff and also sans amp so the Sans amp, of course, I've been using since, uh, God, the 90s. And um, I, you know, it's funny when you start working on demos, sometimes you start with a loop maybe and some synth, uh, you know, software keys. So the dynamic range isn't like a real band in a room, right? So that means the volume is a bit contained. So sometimes those modeling plugins sound really good. They sound huge. But then once you get somebody like Kenny Aronoff to play on a song, you, you suddenly your guitar sound shrinks. Yeah. It's really interesting. 
um, when you compare it against, you know, uh, modeling stuff against real world, you know, recorded musicians in a room. So in this particular case, when I would send all the guitar tracks to uh, Eric uh, and Greg, my engineer and, uh, and mix engineer, uh, we would listen to all of them and say, well, okay, you know, the, the vintage Marshall has that sound and the, the new signature Marshall has that sound and everything. Then you get to the sans amp and you go like, wow, that thing sounds huge. And then they, they take my recording of the sans amp and they put it through a Fairchild or um, they actually had Les Paul's very own LA-2A which is pretty amazing. And that thing just got bigger and bigger. And it kind of blew our minds that the Sans Amp PSA-1 plugin by Avid, very old plugin, uh, sounded better on every single song, whether it was super clean, chimey guitars or really over-distorted guitars with a couple of pedals in front. And we didn't really plan on it and didn't even, it didn't even register until we mixed the album and, I was having a conversation with Erica Dia about it, and we said, "Can you believe it? We use Sanzeb on every guitar track." <laughs> so, I I don't know what to say other than the, it just sounded so big. It was so much more dynamic than uh, the usual way of reamping and re-recording with real live amps and all of the modeling suites that we had available to us. And, you know, there's a real bass guitarist and a real set of drums in a room. So it's the recording is very natural sounding. So it's not like we were, you know, dropping a guitar solo on an EDM track that's already kind of squished, you know. Yeah, it's 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 rock and roll. So it really it had to work hard, but it really lived up, you know, to to its promise. I'm really glad you said that. And we'll do a quick segue because of this. And I told you a little bit about this off the air. Um, I, I sent John a message uh, and I asked him this question because I was recording demos and I use Helix for everything. And I, I loved my tone. I'm Helix native, a software base, right? Uh, and I love my tone so, so much that uh, it was, in my opinion, the best tone I've recorded. I, I can't stick a mic on a cabinet and get a good tone. I can't do it. And I asked John his opinion, and I won't quote him on what he said, because uh, it's not fair without him being here. I mean, you know, he did bring up the fact that, you know, you looking for the Rockman back in the day, and that was kind of, you know, that was your first kind of take on that, kind of a modeler, yeah. so to speak. But do, like, of course, you've mentioned plugins now, but do modelers, and I see one behind you back, it looks like a fractal, possibly. Is that what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. Do they have yeah. a place in the studio? They respect it now, in your opinion? If you, someone comes in, they get a good tone out of it. It's all about what you capture or has it got to be tried and true amps or what are your thoughts on the modelers in the studio world? Well, I, I think the first thing is that the, the equipment has to inspire the musician to deliver a really good performance. I mean, that is the key. So, I, I mean, it really, I mean, human beings, we're really funny. I mean, you know, we don't like, when we hear recordings uh, of, you know, great performances uh, from decades ago, we don't know if the guy playing the guitar, the harmonica or the bass, whatever, just picked up the thing that somebody handed to him 10 minutes beforehand, hated it, but said, well, I got a gig to do, so I'm going to do it. I mean, you know, sometimes history is made uh, under duress. <laughs> you know what I mean? So musical history gets made and you find out later, you know, that wasn't his drum kit of choice. You know, uh, it's like Led Zeppelin when the in um, Whole Lot of Love and you hear the, the backwards echo and reverb in the voice. It turns out it was print through and they had to do something to cover up the fact that 
it was a horrible thing that happened because <laughs> stuff printed too too hot on the tape, recording tape. So uh, there were all kinds of things that happened. But as recipients, as fans, you know, uh, of music, we just take it in. If we like it, we like it, and we say, well, because I like it, that whatever that guy was using, whatever that woman was playing, that is the thing that is now, you know, what we trust as being the authentic, but actually it's not. So let's, let's make sure that we get that straight, that it really is about, uh, does the gear uh, create uh, an environment where the artist can be truly inspired and deliver a great performance? Uh, and because as an audience members, we, that's what we're sensitive to great performances of good material. Uh, if we had a recording of, uh, you know, of Mozart on, on a piece of paper that somehow they figured out how to do way back in Mozart's time, we wouldn't care if the fidelity was a bit sketchy, right? We'd, we'd be saying like, oh my God, it's Mozart, right? So I pretty much feel the same way about it. When you hear somebody really delivering a great performance, that's what you live for, you know, and, and you, you, you excuse all the rest of the stuff. Now, having said that, you and I both know because we play guitar that the dynamics uh, in uh, a live amp, you plug into a twin reverb, you stand in front of it, that thing is going to, you know, shave part of your brain off if you're standing <laughs> too close to the speakers and it's up too loud. But and, and the transient response is really something and microphones hear things differently than our ears do. True. And that can be something you can play with once you bring that sound into a control room and you use limiters and compressors to uh to make it sit within the band um but taken on its own it's a pretty revealing cruel amplifier to stand in front of now when you're sitting at your laptop and you've got your uh you know your computer speakers sort of uh, in your in, you know bedroom studio and you bring up uh amplitude five or you know um uh, uh, any modeling suite at Sans app, anything uh, you're going to hear uh, something that is tailored already. It's not like the twin reverb in the room with you. It's something that's been sort of uh, captured and cleaned up and the dynamic range and the, the transient response is a lot lower. It's not like you've got 25 DB difference when you're picking soft or hard, it's going to start to get really low. The cheaper, the modeling software, the, the lower that dynamic range gets. Just like those early line six modeling pedals, it was like a three dB dynamic range. I mm. mean, that's, I mean, I don't know what, what's three dB, the dynamic range, that's like music on a video game. It's just ridiculous. It just, it, it, it's annoying, you know? And, and uh, but it was the only way to get those, those cool sounds in a pedal, uh, you know, uh, that was affordable. Now, having said that, if you record with it, if you if it inspires you to play great, that's great. You always have a volume control as you mix to make the guitar sound as if it's getting louder and softer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know that's part of our job as as musicians is to create a a recording that is inspiring. So if you know you've got a great performance, but the dynamic range isn't great, well then recreate it, or if you've got a great performance and it's too damn dynamic, you know, it's a telecaster straight into a, uh, you know, a twin reverb, then yeah, put some limiters and compressors on there and get that thing to be sweet 
So it sits right next to the vocals and the bass and the drums and the piano. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, there's so many people these days going like, you know, the stages are cleaning up. You know, you don't see ants on stage anymore. And Metallica, Def Leppard, a million different bands doing that. And I think for mm -hmm. someone like yourself, you are so musical when it comes to like you use feedback as an orchestra. You've always been good mm -hmm. for that, you know, really, really controlling feedback. And sometimes people, you know, it's either horrible for them. They can't get feedback to save their lives or whatever. But you use it as a musical note. And I, yeah. I think that would be hard if you went full in-ear digital, you know, nothing on stage. You know, that'd be a little bit difficult to achieve, wouldn't it? Almost impossible. Yeah, I, I have no interest in that at all. Yeah, um, that, that's, that's the worst thing for me. Of course, there's no singer on stage when I'm playing. So, um, yeah, they, they, <laughs> they call it guitar world. That's where my little zone on stage right is uh, once you step into it, you are surrounded with so much of my guitar sound and I can control the, the feedback by moving around in that environment. So we tune that area and we keep the amps tuned a certain way and the, and the, the monitors, uh, as you said, so I can make it part of the sort of the orchestral approach of, of my guitar sound. Um, and even with chicken foot, Sammy was fine with that. He would just come over uh, you know, at limited times, <laughs> but he loves guitar because he's a guitar player himself. So he totally gets it that you have to, you have to really feel it. And that the feedback and sustain is something that you manage uh, by being in a field of volume and, and uh, being able to walk to and away from sources of uh, the monitor uh, of your, of your guitar sound. Um, but I remember, you know, uh, after working with uh, Mick Jagger, who really loved to monitor super loud on stage, uh, I went, I'd seen the Stones a million times, and then I went to see them on the first tour where Mick finally decided to use in-ears, and his vocals were so much better. And, you know, and Keith has got a really loud, very strong, super dynamic guitar sound that you could tell Mick would avoid. <laughs> if he had to cross, you know, uh, in front of Keith's amps, he would do it quickly, <laughs> going from mid-stage to stage left, because he didn't want to get pinged by that. And then he's got Ronnie on the other side. They're both playing vintage amps that have a lot of transient response. So when, when Mick went to the in-ears, it really made a great difference in his vocal abilities. And I, I could tell right away that show, it was, it was at uh, here in San Francisco uh, at the baseball stadium, and it just sounded amazing. And so it, it really is great for singers. Uh, and if you're playing with any program material, like most bands, they have stuff on Pro Tools that's, you know, background vocals, keyboard parts, or they're tied to video stuff. Um, you have to have in-ears with counting and all kinds of cues in there. So, uh, but yeah, what I do is pretty old school, you know, rock band kind of stuff, turn it up and, and make some magic. <laughs> Are you loud over on your side of the stage? Is it quite loud over there in Guitar World? Yeah, I would say it is. I mean, I used to think I was really low. I think when I started, when we started G3 and, and Eric was very uh, concerned about his hearing at the time, I kept my volume at 104 dB, which is really low. I mean, as soon as you, some, someone would hit a snare drum, you wouldn't hear the guitar at all. But I got used to it and it was a, a way to, to, to get Eric to stay on stage. Otherwise, he'd just walk off, you know. Uh. Um, uh, but I noticed like, you know, Steve played really loud. He was up 114 dB or something like that. Um, and uh, and so 
uh, I slowly started to creep up in volume. And then when I ditched the distortion pedals and went to using my signature JVM head, uh, then uh, I was using the amp for all my gain. And I decided just to turn it up because the Marshall amps really do need to get past about 110 before they start to like get less fizzy and more natural sounding. It's just the way that they're built. They just have, you know, the, the power amps have to be really working uh, for, for the, that beautiful Marshall tone to finally bloom, you know? Uh, so it is kind of loud, but I've always worn earplugs. So it's a funny thing. I, you know, during sound check, I go out, I get my sound, I make sure everything's right. But uh, before the band starts playing, the foam earplugs go in <clears throat> and my hearing gets protected <laughs> from myself, but from cymbals. I mean, that's the cymbals and the snare drum oh. will kill you. So, uh, yeah, thankfully, I, I can still hear really well. Uh, and But that's because I've been wearing earplugs for 35 years, you know. I'm sure it couldn't have been like an overnight instant, like uh, gratification of going from the overdrive pedals to the using the amp for full. Was it a bit of a learning curve for you? Like, or did it just did it feel smooth? You know, it, the my studio experiences uh, prepared me for that because I didn't, I wasn't using distortion pedals for a long time. It wasn't until uh, this sort of surprise uh, solo career suddenly materialized. You know, when Surfing with the Alien was released, I didn't have a solo act. I'd never walked on stage and, and led an instrumental show. Um, I didn't have a band. So all of a sudden, uh, for the first three weeks of January of 88, I had to go out on tour and figure out how to do it. And I thought, well, I'm not going to lug around vintage marshals. I didn't have the money to do that. We were doing this really tiny tour, you know. And so I thought the only way to do this would be to get the sound in a little box, which was the DS1, mm -hmm. and figure out one amp that I could play with, and it would sort of take a little bit of the buzz off and just add a bit more punch to the sound. And that wound up being any basic 100-watt uh, Marshall that had a good, clean sound. So I would basically, uh, I would be lent all these different Marshalls wherever we went. I didn't really have a consistent rig at that time. Uh, but that only lasted three weeks. And then all of a sudden I got the gig with Mick Jagger and, and there were no pedals. It was just straight into amps mm. uh, for a good number of months that year. And then when I wasn't with him, I'd go back on the road and I'd have the, the two Marshalls and, and the, the DS1. I tried using the Chandler tube driver uh, that I had used in the studio for songs like Surfing and Satch Boogie, but it just... It didn't work live. It was too noisy, too finicky. Uh, I couldn't depend on it, you know. Um, the boss pedal was very dependable. It didn't sound perfect, but it, you know, it was, I could take that sound with me anywhere in the world and get to that spot. And I thought, this is the most important part that I've got to get to a level where I'm inspired to give the audience a good performance. And if there's 10% missing in, in the mid range or the low end or the high end, I don't think that's as important as me giving a good performance. So that, that was my rationale behind it. Uh, but jumping, uh, you know, to just using the amps, that was a relief because mm. I mean, I was in the studio using you know, just plugging straight into, uh, you know, the Wells amp or that 5150. I mean, you know, the, the, the year it came out, I started using it on the albums 
And that's to me, that sounded great. It's just I couldn't get it to happen on stage. That was the problem. It was either noise or it would only work for half the material. And since I had a lot of material to play, I needed something that would sort of cover all that. So, so, but a lot of these amps are very specific. You know, they, they do that one thing, like the EL34 EVH, it really does late Eddie sound. It doesn't do the early Eddie sound. No, <laughs> you know? no very modern. So, yeah, uh, you know, very smooth, very aggressive, but, but kind of thin in a way for, let's say, my gig, playing melodies and solos. Nothing beats the JVM for that. It just holds the full tone of the guitar all the way up the neck. And if you're like me and you've got to play these melodies high up the neck all night long, you don't want a skinny, shrill sound. You need something that's big and warm. So. Uh, guaranteed. I'll say this very quickly as well. Too, you mentioned the Boss pedals. That's I copied you for so many years when you were doing. You know, pedals were your thing. Well, you still are, yeah. but it's somewhat. The dual uh, DD3s. You know, to have one in there somewhere <laughs> around 250 to 300 milliseconds, and then one about 550. Man, it was that was beautiful. So it was good. Yeah. Thank you for that tip. Yeah, really interesting how that worked out. It worked good. <laughs> yeah, you did it well. We got a question from Maggie in Toronto. She says, "Now uh, we're going back to uh, Elephants of Mars." Um, and this is a tough one to answer probably because it's like asking who's your favorite child if you have multiple children but she and she has her tickets by the way she's from Toronto says uh, is there a song on the new album that moves you the most or it's closest to your heart oh well that's a great question I'd say all of them for sure um, there were some songs that were so hard to record because they were you know heartbreaking uh, and getting in the mood the right space to do a song like desolation was so hard i never could have done it if i hadn't been alone let's put it that way but being able to record by myself and not being uh what what's the word uh, not feeling self-conscious if i if i got too emotional um allowed me to to do that one complete performance like that and it took it took a few weeks of just trying to let my emotions out you know uh, at the same time, being silly and being super happy is also something that sometimes you might feel, you know, uh, shy about. Like if you're in a room with your, your, your fellow musicians and you just want to do something silly and you go like, oh, they're going to laugh at me if I'm, you know, not serious. And, and I found that the process of recording remotely actually brought more of my personality onto the record than previous albums where um, I felt a little, I mean, I'm basically a shy person. So what I noticed was that, boy, all these years I've been playing to the engineer or the producer, or if my keyboard player, my drummer's in the room, I, I'm affected by it. And I'm, and I'm trying to work the room, no matter who's in the room, which is silly. Uh, but, and I, it never dawned on me until I got to record all by myself for a long period of time. And I thought, wow, there's nobody here to make me feel self-conscious so I can really let my true feelings out. And uh, so it made a big difference. So I could play a song like Bluefoot Groovy, which does not have a deep meaning, but it's just a celebration uh, of, of feeling good. And, uh, and that sh that's as valid as, you know, writing about the loss of somebody or, or loneliness or confusion or, you know, a bigger, uh, more uh, serious subject. So um, the album's got so much on there that uh, never would have been done had I been staring at the clock. 
worried about delivery dates and all that kind of stuff. True. And thousands of dollars per hour just to be in a room with a bunch of guys. So, And I think everybody in the band gave better performances because they were in the same position as I was. They were by themselves in their studio and they had the time to really apply themselves. Well, that's a great answer. Thank you. And, you know, I'm going to segue in a second because I, I am a fan of your vocal work. I, I like your vocal work. I always have. You know, I know you don't do a lot of it. So 99.99999% of your material is instrumental music. And I'm curious, you talked about one, not necessarily, uh, Blue Fret Groovy, not necessarily having a meaning. So as an instrumentalist, where does the title come, like, does, where does this come from? Is it just so you play something, it gives you an instant vibe, you feel that, become the title. How do titles come into the play and the creation process for your material? Yeah, there's a, boy, there's a lot of different ways that it happens. Sometimes uh, I get a feeling um, about uh, uh, an imaginary person, like the song like Sahara is about a person who's really lost spiritually and, and lost in the world. And he might as well be in the middle of the desert. So that's why the, the title is Sahara. But I wrote lyrics to that. And I, I thought the whole band was going to do that. And Ray was going to sing it. Uh, in the end, it turned out I had to rewrite it to be an instrumental. Uh, but I had this full character and vocal uh, image in my mind of this sort of Kirk Cobain, uh, John Lennon singing words. But the sound of his voice was telling you another story. And in the movie, in my head, it was Jared Leto <laughs> was the actor walking in the streets of New York City. Nobody around the place is post-apocalypse and he's you know out there screaming for help it really does help drive me to play correctly pick the right notes pick the right guitar textures add that bit of tension and and release and uh, eventually drove me to use uh yeah one of these hendrix pedals <laughs> for the solo fantastic and, and it was really great just to 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 be inspired by that little imaginary movie in my head um and then uh, uh bluefoot groovy is really funny because there were a bunch of songs i had that i i'd written when i was talking to sammy hagar about doing a a separate kind of a either a a kind of a, a chicken foot record or just a sammy hagar joe satriani record that was going to be blues type songs that didn't have bridges in them it was a crazy idea we had one afternoon and i'd written maybe about 10 or 12 songs and it never happened you know the the idea but uh, i kept going back to this one song that i thought was really great and i i wound up writing a bridge for it and everything but i never changed the title because sam never wrote the lyrics to it so it just kept going until finally we're going to mix the record and i was telling eric oh i haven't come up with the title yet for this one. And he said, no, Bluefoot Groovy. No one knows what that means. It's perfect. <laughs> so uh, sometimes there is no meaning. You know, it's just a feeling. Right. And you know what it's about. But, you know, I think I used to sing something like I could make you happy or so. I was trying to, it was some kind of a image I had about Sammy trying to sell himself to uh, this, this woman that he, he wanted to have fall in love with him. It was, that was the, the scheme I was trying to sell. And I, it just, I, I guess it never happened. <laughs> okay. Okay. 
Well, we, I'm going to keep a close eye on the time. We have five minutes, and you have to get out of here for your next interview. I'm going to throw two questions at you. You can answer them in any order, and we'll let you fly here. So, uh, number one, how important is the guitar riff to the song composition? Is it, I'm obviously being an instrumentalist. Guitar riff is important. Is it melody first, or is it the guitar riff? And lastly, you can cap on this. Talk about the Earth tour and let people know about uh, the tour that's underway. Well, it's going to be underway. Yeah. Um, well, boy, you know, some songs don't need riffs at all. Um, and then other songs really need them. I, let's, let's talk about, uh, there's a song from the extremist record called crying. There is no riff. If you listen to that, right. The song is boom. And then you hear the melody come in, you know, that's, that's a perfect example of, of a song that has no riff, you know? Um, but then you look at, uh, other songs from that record and they're so riff heavy, um, where the band, uh, playing the groove or a riff together is the signature that sets up the melody that comes in, you know, like 30 minutes, uh, 30 seconds or a minute later. Um, same, uh, same on, uh, on this new album, there are quite a few songs where they play around with what is the important thing here? Is it the riff or the melody? Uh, I think the, the other answer to your question is that you, when you write a piece of music, the, the question you ask yourself is, am I ade adequately expressing the meaning of the song to the audience? And then if, if, the, if you feel like it's lacking, then you go, well, I've got to, you know, I've got to build it up. I've got to re-explain. I've got to add to the chords or the melody or something like that to make it work. And it may turn out it's missing a riff, an introductory kind of a thing. So uh, sometimes they come by accident uh the song pumpkin did not have that funny little funky introduction in the beginning it that was something that when i was listening to all the takes uh that kenny had done he was just goofing around during this breakdown section and i loved it so much i said eric could you take that and make that an introduction and i'll play a funky riff on top of it so sometimes the riff comes last <laughs> um and I'm happy you mentioned the tour. We're finally going back on tour. The Earth Tour uh, will start in late September of this year. Uh, Brian Beller on bass, Kenny Aronoff on drums, Ray Thistlethwaite on keyboards and guitar. And I'm sure we'll talk him into singing a song or two because he's an amazing vocalist. Um, we'll be doing an evening with uh, a show every night. So that's a lot of songs with an intermission. And uh, we are so happy that we're finally going to be able to see our fans again and share some music with them. That's going to be great. I'm happy for you. I'm happy for all of you, for sure. Thank you. It's thank you good. so much. Well, I'm going to let you fly here. I want to thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Lifetime, a lifetime uh, bucket list moment to speak with you. Uh, great inspiration. Thank you for all the gifts of the greatest guitar playing. And I mean, countless, countless beautiful pieces. Thank you so much. Thank you, Eric. It's really been a lot of fun talking to you. I appreciate that as well. We'll keep in touch. And thanks to Michelle and uh, Melissa at uh, Team uh, Joe headquarters there. So thank you for helping us with this uh, interview, facilitating today as well, too. And uh, have a great tour, a successful one out there. And we'll look forward to seeing you uh, on, on the road for sure. I'm going to say goodbye to you off the air. Everyone, thank you so much for tuning in. It's a fast one today, but Joe's a busy man. Lots of interviews. We'll talk to you again very, very soon right here on Music Your Network. Until next time. Cheers.